Well, please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. We're studying this book, as you know, which describes the work and worth of God in Christ Jesus. And we're picking up on a second uh, sermon in the passage that finishes the first chapter, which is Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. And I've entitled it, Pray Like This. And the reason is, if we look carefully at how Paul prays for the Ephesian believers, those in Asia Minor, we can learn a pattern of not only what we can pray, but also how we can be the answer to a prayer request from the Apostle Paul. Let me read that for us. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Paul says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Good communication and good conversation includes some important features on your part. If you want to have a good conversation with someone, first of all, there's relationship. The relationship you have with a person that you're talking to makes a difference in the quality of that conversation. If I'm sitting with a friend talking about things that are important to me, that's far different than me sitting beside someone on a plane who I don't know, who I'm trying to find some common ground with. How well you know the person makes a difference in the conversation. How close you are to that person makes a difference. How long you've known the person makes a difference in, in the conversation. But second, there's the content or the subject matter of what you're talking about. The quality of your conversation is always influenced by how well you know the subject you're talking about. A few weeks ago, Kim, were, Kim and I were on vacation in uh, Wyoming with some friends, and they went mushroom hunting and found a bunch. I actually found a bunch with them, put on a rubber glove, picked them for them, and, and uh, didn't really put on a rubber glove, brought them back, and they were cooking all these morel, yeah, these things that look... Anyway, um, I hate mushrooms, for those of you who may not remember. They were having this whole discussion at dinner about mushrooms and the flavor and the texture, and, the, and I had nothing to contribute the, to the conversation, nothing except disdain. And I, it, it dawned on me that I, I, 
I can't really talk about something that I don't care about and I don't like. Subject matter matters when, you, when you're talking to someone as to how engaged you can be on that conversation. Consequently, these two exact same features come to bear when we speak to God. Relationship and content. Prayer is talking to God, conversing with God. And just like how well you know someone and what you talk about influences our conversations with each other, how well we know God and how well we know what we're talking about to God with respect to theology makes a difference as well. Interestingly, Paul highlights these two dimensions in his own prayer. We can see them out, uh, unfolding as he, as he speaks to God on behalf of the Ephesians. But he also prays for these two things as he prays for the Ephesians. Relationship and content, or theology. Relationship with God and content of understanding God. He prays that the Ephesians will grow in the relationship and understanding of God as well as a deeper understanding of theology, knowing that as he prays for those things... If those things come about in the Ephesians, they will have a better access and understanding and prayer life with God themselves. So how are you doing this with your understanding of God? How are you doing with your understanding of theology? This is what I've, I've noticed looking at this prayer over the last few studies. If, if we want to know God, if we care about knowing God, if God is the object of our affections and pursuits... And our minds are informed with theological concepts and truth and biblically informed minds, our prayers will be substantively different than if we didn't pursue God and we didn't think about theology. We noted in our last study that prayer is a learned behavior. And remember, the only record we have of the disciples ever making a request that Jesus teach them something was when they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Why did they do that? They must have heard the way that Jesus prayed and thought, that's not how I pray. But teach us how to access and talk to God in the way that you do. In the same way, we would look at Paul's prayers here and in all the New Testament. We'll meet another one in Ephesians chapter 3, another one of his prayers. And we should say, wow, Paul instruct us how to pray better like you pray as well. Teach us to pray. We recognize, I hope you recognize, that we need to increase in our understanding of what prayer is, how to pray better, and how to fill our minds with better content to talk to God about. You know, sometimes I think if we were to evaluate our prayers, we could probably describe them as Donna Whitney says, we pray the same old things about the same old things. How repetitive do your prayers actually sound? Can you imagine how a relationship would, would, would develop and, and prosper if you just said the same old things about the same old things all the time? Well, I think this prayer that Paul prays is something we can look at and say we should pray like this. It's an example. But also, we should look at how you and I can be answers to this kind of prayer as well. So there's several layers of application as we're working through this text. Now, we started last week by noticing, or last study, by noticing there are three intentional inclusions for improved prayer. 
These are things that we should include in our prayer lives, mimicking what Paul is doing. Three intentional inclusions for improved prayer. And we got the first two of those studied last week, and we'll look at the last one this morning. But let me just remind you of the first two. The first thing we looked at is thankful awareness. That should be included in our prayers if we want to improve them. Thankful awareness, specifically knowing and caring about the spiritual health of others. We know about others' spiritual health. We care about it. We pray about it. For this reason, verse 15 too, and this reason goes back to the spiritual blessings that Paul says we've inherited because of our relationship with Christ in the first 14 verses. For those reasons, this reason too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. That is a loaded phrase for this reason. Because you are in Christ, because you've learned of Christ, because you love Christ, because you've been saved by Christ, it's made a difference in your life. Now, if you put the basic structure together in verses, verses 15 and 16, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. I, I, I keep thanking God for you. Why? And he gives two reasons right in the middle of the sentence. First, having heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, which means that he was spiritually sensitive to the spiritual sensibilities of his friends at Ephesus. kind of should turn up our radar and extend the antenna of our own mind to look for the spiritual realities and the spiritual health of those we know who are in Christ. We care about how they care about Christ. We're spiritually sensitive. He had heard of their faith, not just how they were doing, not just how their their grandma and their aunt and their, their friends were doing. He heard how they were doing in their pursuit, their faith, their belief in the Lord Jesus. Secondly, and your love for all the saints. And as we noted, this is a big deal. When Paul was telling the Ephesians, those in Asia Minor, I've heard of your love for, very specific, all the saints. That would have included Jews and Gentiles. And we noted last time that that was important. That was a big deal. Jews and Gentiles had different diets. You couldn't even have each other over for dinner without there being a collision. They had different calendars, different holidays, different weekends, different ways they dressed, different languages, different places of worship, the synagogues and the pagan temples different ways their children play, different neighborhoods, different places they could each shop, different greetings, different goodbyes. They were different in every imaginable way, and yet Paul says, I've heard you love each other, that nothing culturally stands in between your gracious appreciation of each other's faith. Also, we remember that for centuries, the Gentiles had encroached on Israel's real estate, Rome was now the dominating force over the Jews. Exorbitant taxation, religious persecution were a part of their lives from the Gentiles to the Jews. And yet they came together in church and loved each other. Eight years from the writing of this letter, the Romans would come and destroy the temple, destroy Jerusalem, and in effect wipe out Jewish worship as they knew it. There was serious antagonism between these two groups. And Paul says, I've heard you love each other. Nothing 
nothing should be a barrier in the church to Christian love. Not age, not race, not social status, nothing. And we remembered also that Paul is praying all this about these Ephesians, and he's in jail. And we noted that his prayer is selfless. He's not praying, pray that I'm released. He says, I'm a prisoner in chains in chapter 6. Pray that I'm faithful while I'm here in prison. So many lessons there. He was thankfully aware of his friends at Ephesus. Are you aware of the spiritual health of the people you know and love? The people who you're sitting around right now, can you, can you with accuracy say, I know how so-and-so is doing with the Lord. I know how their quiet times are going. I know how their prayer life is going. I know how their parenting is, is uh, being shepherded by the word of God and how healthy their marriages are because of Christ. Do we know enough to thank God for those realities? You cannot thank God for things you don't know about. He was thankfully aware. And secondly, again, we're reviewing. The second inclusion was concentrated supplication, specific prayer request. Specifically, he said, to gain greater understanding of God himself. Specifically, verse 17, he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit. Now, we said that's not the Holy Spirit there. That's, that's your own spirit, your, your inclination. Give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He's praying that they come to know about God better, which will cause them to know him personally better. There's a lot made of, well, there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. And that's true, but you can never know God without knowing about God. And there's only one source of that revelation and wisdom, and that's the Holy Scriptures. It's the Bible itself. No one can or will know God without an accurate understanding of him as articulated in the Bible. There is no truthful, reliable source about God outside the scriptures. So if we are going to know him, this is tantamount to Paul saying, I pray that they seek you in your word. When you think about how you pray for friends and family, I was doing some inventory this week with my own prayer life and even looking at my own prayer request and prayer list that I have in my Evernote that that I go over. It was convicting that so many of those items on my prayer list were temporal. And please, there's nothing wrong with temporal prayer requests. I've told you, if if I'm going in for some kind of surgery, I, I want you to pray for my surgery and the doctors. It's not that we don't pray for those, But do we pray that our friends that we love who are brothers and sisters in the faith, do we pray often, regularly, and deeply that they would come to a deeper and better and more accurate knowledge of God through his son, the Lord Jesus? Do we pray like this? Paul's request here is tantamount to asking God to give them a desire to study God's word. God's word is the only medium for knowing and communicating with our God 
relationally. It's too easy an illustration, but if you're married, you understand this. I, I remember when I first met Kim Harris at that junior high staff meeting, and I had trouble listening to anything because I kept looking at her. And we started talking, and we got to know each other, and we went on excursions. There weren't dates yet with friends and stuff. And I, and I kept talking to her. The more I got to know her, the more I wanted to get to know her. And the relationship deepened. It's the same thing with God. The more we know about him, the more we want to know him because he's attracted. Nothing should be more interesting to a Christian than God through Jesus. Nothing. And we find that out through scripture. Well, that brings us to where we want to study today in the bulk of our attention. And that is theological purposefulness. Put it up there. Theological purposefulness. In other words, comprehension of gospel details and nuances. This is important. Remember how I said that um, uh, the the two features of of being a better conversationalist are knowing the person you're talking to and then having better content, better things to talk about. These are those things that Paul talks about to God about the Ephesians. His theology invaded his prayer life. Theological purposefulness will change us from praying the same old things about the same old things to praying deep and righteous requests for those we know. For the second time in our study of Ephesians 1, though, we come to a translation issue that we need to, we need to address. The New American uh, Standard Bible translates verse 18 as this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. You see that? And if you have a New American Standard Bible, you'll see that I pray that is in italics. Whenever you see words in italics in the New American Standard, it shows that those are words that the translators have supplied but are not in the original. They're trying to help you understand what they believe the writer was trying to to say. Now, I pray that is certainly okay to supply there, but when you get into the, 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 the Greek nuance of the verb... I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I think there's a better way to understand that, and your marginal note will probably tell you this. The only actual words there are translated, your heart may be enlightened. Now, without going into a ton of Greek grammar that I think only Megan Weibling might understand and some of our our, our seminary students, I'll point out the translational note and the side note of your Bibles. The word translated may be, could be translated being. I think it's more an, a more accurate reading to take that translation. Dr. Harold Honer, who is just such a, an amazing Greek scholar, translates this like this, and I, I like his translation. Going back up to verse 16. Making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of insight and revelation and the knowledge of him since since because the eyes of your heart have been enlightened now that's a different nuance are we praying that people's eyes of their heart will be open i know the song open the eyes of my heart lord nice song wrong text 
Or are we saying, hearing Paul say, you're, I'm praying that because the eyes of your heart have been enlightened, that, I think that's the better way to understand this. You say, where have the eyes of, of someone's heart been opened? The first 14 verses of Ephesians 1. We've been given these spiritual insights. We know these things. It's an important distinction. Instead of praying for hearts to be enlightened, Paul is praying that the thinking and actions of the Ephesians are to be based on their hearts having already been enlightened, illumined. In other words, theological precision, theological accuracy, and spiritual health come from revelation, not intuition. He's saying you've already been given the revelation you need that have opened your eyes to understand the right kind of spiritual realities. That's why back in verse 17 says that God will give you a spirit, an inclination of revelation. Well, this is not just walking around and God poofing things into your mind. It's the Bible. It's the things he's just told us in the first 14 verses. The focus here is the heart also. The heart is really important. What is the heart in Scripture? Well, my old seminary teacher, Dr. George Zimmick, for years called the heart the mission control center of your life. I like that. Mission control central of who you are. Listen to how the Scripture uses this term. Romans 10.10. For with the heart a person believes. Now, is that talking about the four chambers that pump blood? No. The heart, he's talking about your, your, your understanding, your volition with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation jesus said in matthew 12 34 speaking of the pharisees you brood of vipers how can you being evil speak what is good for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart the mission control center of your life matthew 15 Verse 19, Jesus said, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witnesses, and slander. So the heart is the residence of our depravity, and the heart is the residence of our potential to worship and serve God. How do we know that? Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus said to the rich young ruler, You shall love the Lord your God with all your, what? Heart with all your soul, with all your mind. It's who we are, the mission control of our lives. John 14, do not let your heart be troubled, but believe in God and believe also in me. It's how you feel and how you think. It's all that you are. It's Jonathan Edwards' affections that he called the inner being of who we are. That's the heart. So going back to the actual prayer request, I pray that because your heart has been enlightened, that, because your heart has been enlightened, God has given us enlightenment through his revelation, which is found in his word. The heart is who you are, and the heart is what you think. Which brings us, kind of breaking it down, to knowing the hope of his calling. If you look at the theological purposefulness we need to think through and pray through, the first thing to consider is knowing the hope of his calling. Back to verse 18. 
Because your heart has been enlightened, I pray that you will know what is the hope of his calling. This can be so confusing because of how we use the word hope. Typically, hope in our language is wishful thinking. I hope I get to go on vacation. I hope I don't get sick. I hope it doesn't rain today. I ho- it's, it's wishful thinking. That's not a description of the word and the concept of hope in the New Testament. Hope is knowing and remembering theological truths that you believe in, not hope or true. Your peace, your contentment, your stability, your happiness, your joy are all directly related to what you know from the scriptures and that gives us hope, something we can bank our lives on. It's what you know. You know the hope of his calling. Hope is not wondering wishfully if I can go to a Royals game. Hope is knowing when I'm going to the Royals game. Hope is knowing that I'm going to the game. You hear the difference? There's a difference between hoping that something will happen and hoping because you know it will happen. And he says, you know, or know is important, that you will know, bank on, what is the certainty or assurance of his calling. What is his calling? You've got to go back up to verses 4 to 6. He's predestined us. He's chosen us. He's made us his own, adopted us as sons and daughters. That gives us hope. He will bring us safely home in his heavenly kingdom not wishful thinking it's assured confidence Paul's praying that the Ephesians would have assured confidence you know what that tells me is that they didn't have it just like you and just like me you ever have doubts about your salvation you ever lay at night in your bed alone with your thoughts and wonder am I am I really a son or a daughter of God how could I possibly be truly converted and think like I thought or act like I acted or said what I said when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within what do you do feel condemned Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Hear how that theological truth comes and trumps? It gives us assurance. It's the point of that song. It's the point of this prayer. Paul is praying that you and I, that the Ephesians would have assurance of the hope or confidence of his calling, that we would have assurance of our salvation. I think so many times, so many times, Satan makes us ineffective by causing us to doubt our own standing before God. And Paul is saying, I pray that you're sure. I pray that you're sure based on him, not on you. And we'll come to that in a moment. He also prays that we would know the wealth of his inheritance, knowing the wealth of his inheritance. This is another theological purposefulness we add in our prayerfulness. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? I'm not going to rehearse this again. You can go back and listen to the recording of the the first um, uh, uh, in this series. Paul is not saying, I don't think, that we're looking forward to what we get as an inheritance, but rather who we are as God's inheritance. 
What are the riches of the glory? This is what we glory in. Of his inheritance. What is God's inheritance? In the saints. That Christians, go back and read John 14, John 15, John 16. Christians are a love gift from the Father to the Son. As sons and daughters. And again, we've already studied that back in our previous passage. Also, that we would know the greatness of his power. Knowing the greatness of his power. That gives us theological purposefulness. Now, I'm going to confess, this one also breaks down into three subpoints. Uh, diagramming and outlining this is a challenge. But just follow Paul's logic here. The wealth of his inheritance is rooted in the greatness of his power, what he's done in verse 19. And what is, I pray that you will know, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Let's reverse engineer that first. Those who believe is the foundation of God's sons and daughters. You believe faith and that we would know the surpassing greatness the Greek is, greatness is great. Paul's prayer is that believers would know the surpassing greatness of how mighty God's power is. It's the word dunamis. It's the word from which we get the word dynamite, the explosive power of God. This means sufficiency, ability, and satisfaction are rooted in God. Sufficiency, ability, and satisfaction all rooted in God. Now, Paul's going to tell us how this power is focused. So follow what he's doing. He's talking about the surpassing greatness of God's power. Where does that manifest? Where do we see that? How is it focused? Now we're going to break it down into three more, okay? First of all, in Christ's resurrection and exaltation. Remember what we said, the content of Paul's theology informed the richness of his prayers. His Christology leaked into everything he talked to God about. These are in accordance, his power being manifested to us, with the working of the strength of his might. Now, there's a lot going on there. Strength of his might. How strong is might? Well, how strong is God's might? How powerful is God's power? He gives us an illustration. Christ's resurrection and exaltation. Which, verse 20... God brought about in Christ demonstration of his power. How powerful is God? When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places or the heavenlies. As we're going to continue to see in our study of Ephesians, the resurrection of Jesus Christ plays a central role for Christ's exalted status and a central role in Paul's theology. The resurrection is central to Christianity because death is central to the human experience. Let me say that again. The resurrection is central to Christianity because death is central to the human experience. The writer to the Hebrews tells us this. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. In fact, why don't you turn over there to Hebrews chapter 2 for a minute. I think this is important to look at. Probably one you want to mark in your Bible. The writer says, Hebrews 2, verse 14. Therefore, since, because 
The children, these are all people. Children share in flesh and blood. All human beings, that's his point. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise, partook of the same. He became flesh and blood. He became a man. Why? Why did Jesus become a human? Why did he have flesh and blood? Why? That through death, his own death, Jesus might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. How is the devil, how did the devil use the power of death to his advantage? Verse 15. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. There it is. The resurrection is central to Christianity because death is central to the human experience and the fear of death is something to which you and I are slaves. Interesting imagery. Slave means you obey, that you're subject to. We are subject to and we obey the fear of death more than anyone understands. And one of the things that the gospel does, and what, he's, what Paul is telling us here, is I pray that you will be, <laughs> you'll be so knowledgeable about, confident about Christ's resurrection from the dead that it will supplant and replace your fear of your own death. Listen to how Peter describes the centrality of the resurrection. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, our entire faith, our entire confidence, our hope, everything we believe is based on Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Let me say it this way. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, there is no Christianity. Is that not what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14? If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is useless. It's in vain. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. You hear that? The death of Christ without the resurrection provides no forgiveness for sins. That's what Paul's saying. But verse 20, he says, But Christ has now been raised from the dead. We speak of this so often. I'm so moved by Paul's own testimony. We don't know how many times he was put on trial for his faith. It was, it was many, and at least four times that we know of before the Jerusalem Council, um, before Felix, before Festus, before Agrippa. He was put on trial. You know why? For preaching the resurrection. It wasn't just that he raised him from the dead. Paul goes on to say that he was also exalted. He was resurrected from the dead, ascended in the book of Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and following, and he, he was exalted to the right hand of the Father, seated at his right hand. 
Romans 8 says he's there praying for us. He's interceding for us right now. But there's more. It's impossible to talk about this without looking ahead. Turn the page and look at Ephesians chapter 4, chapter 2 rather, verse 4. The next chapter we find an incredible reality that not only has God raised Christ from the dead, seated him at his right hand, look at Ephesians 2, 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. There's resurrection in faith to Christ and promise of resurrection in the future from the literal grave. By grace you've been saved. Verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You ever thought about who is he going to tell that to? Other believers, God the Father, God the Spirit, and the angels. He will look forever with us seated by him and saying, look what I accomplished by my death and resurrection. We'll obviously come back to that in a few weeks when we get to chapter 2. Part of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians includes requesting from God that they remember where Christ is and where Christ will be with them in the future eschatology, the study of future things matters it's intended for us to live righteously because of that coming reality a second focus of Christ's power though is in verses 21 and 22 in Christ's authority in the universe this is just mind blowing I mean, just you, your brain, I just want to tell you your brain is not big enough for this to fit in it's just not, no one's is he exalted him, seated him at the right hand of the Father. Verse 21, far above, these are interesting words, all rule, all authority, and power, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Well, the heavenly places is picked up from verse 20. In the heavenly places is where Christ is seated. And verse 20 shifts our focus to gaze on the spiritual world itself. Now the Apostle Paul will show us Christ's greatness over that realm as well as the world we see. Now these, these four words are interesting. Rule, arche, that means the leader of, of, the, uh, of something, the, the most important one, the ruler, authority, exousia, authority overall, the social constructs, power, dunamis, and dominion comes from the, the Greek um, for lord or kurios. All of these, by the way, were very familiar terms that the Jews used to describe the levels of demons. Angelic beings as well. Do you believe in the devil? Do you believe in demons? Paul did. And Jesus did. He goes on, not just from them, but also in every name that is named. Not only in this age, but the one to come. What he's doing is he's saying, every name that's named, 
whether it's Caesar, whether it's a governor, whether it's Pontius Pilate, every name that is named now and in the age to come on this, in this world and also in the world we cannot see in every possible dimension of time and every possible dimension of space, what we can see and what we can't see, everything and every person, Jesus is Lord over. Spiritual battle between God and his angels and Satan and the demons is significant in the book of Ephesians. In chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says, To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known now to the church, to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. But he says that he's showing his rule over them by the church. Obedience matters. Holiness matters. In Ephesians 6, he'll say, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, same words, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And his point here in chapter 1 is that Jesus is the ruler and Lord over all of that. They are all in subjection and in submission to him. He's far above them. He's by God's right hand. Jesus' authority is above everyone and above everything, which is why he summarizes this in verse 22. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. These words have comprehensive implications in both space and in time. Abraham Kuyper has famously said, There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. And he's right. And there's the third area of focus. And this is where it touches you and me. Christ's headship over the church. Remember, all of these are intended to feed the, the way we pray with data and theology that makes us pray better and different. <laughs> and he gave him, stop right there. This is incredible. Look at what Paul's doing. He's saying, Jesus is head over everything in the heavenlies demons and angels. He's over every, every name that can be named on earth now and the ones to come. Time, space, nothing, nothing threatens his lordship. He is the ruler over all and he gave the ruler over all <laughs> as head over all things, that's what we just said, to the church. Our Lord is not a Lord Our Lord is the Lord. Jesus is not to be trifled with. 
The ruler of all is the ruler of us, the church. Then verse 23. Which is his body, the church? The fullness of him who fills all in all. Now Paul, if you read through Paul's letters, he uses several metaphors for the church in his writings. He talks of the church as a family. He talks of the church as members of an extended household. He speaks of the church as a building, sometimes just a structure, a holy temple. He talks of the church as a field and sometimes as a bride. But here he uses the term body, which is his favorite metaphor and description of the church. He uses it more than any other metaphor. The human body. 1 Corinthians 12 says that he is the head and we are the body parts. And because of that, would the hand ever say to the foot, I'm more important to you, or the eye to the nose, or the nose to the ear? This is ridiculous. No, no, no. All of the body parts are important. We are the body of Christ, who is the head. The creator and ruler of the universe is our personal leader in life in the church and our head, and we are the extensions of his body. This is intended to both humble us and encourage us. We have a low attendance this morning because of the holiday weekend and other things. And it would be easy for us to say, ah, oh, this, is, this is not that big a deal. And you would be right. We're not that big a deal unless we realize that we are the body of Christ and then we are not a big deal. We are the ultimate deal to him. Hendrickson and William Hendrickson and Simon Kistemaker write, the words who fills all in all, see that last phrase, who fills all in all, mean that Christ fills all the universe in all respects. That is, the entire universe is not only dependent on him for the fulfillment of its every need, but also governed by him in the interest of the church, which in turn must serve the universe and is replenished by his boundless gifts. Thus, he is constantly pervading all things with his love and power. What he's saying is this. The most important group of people on this planet are Christ's true church. That's how he is touching this world. Ephesians 1 has been a tour de force of theology and insight. We find out here that the the better we know God and the better we know theology, the better we will pray. The takeaways are not theoretical, they're practical. And Harold Honer, again, helps us here. It's a longer quote, but I just want to read it to you. It's just, I can't improve on it. Paul prays that God will give the Holy Spirit insight, Holy Spirit's insight and disclosure in the sphere or area of the knowledge of God himself. This corresponds to 1 Corinthians 2, where the Holy Spirit searches the deep things of God and reveals them to the believer. The deep things of God are God's wisdom and power to change individuals through the crucified Christ. In the present context, the believer is to come to know him 
intimately. And as a result, the believer will become acquainted with God's actions. Think about this. What God has done described in the following verses. Hence, it is not the facts about God that are most important, but knowing Him personally and intimately. Think about that. We can know God personally and intimately. One can know many facts about the leader of a nation through the news media. But that's quite different from personally knowing that leader as his or her family does. Thus, one acquires this knowledge of God not only by facts from the Bible, but by the Holy Spirit's giving insight and disclosure in the knowledge of God himself. In the end, philosophy says, know yourself, whereas Christianity says, know your God through the Holy Spirit. One final thing needs to be said that needs to be said is that this knowledge of God is available to all Christians and not just to the apostles, prophets, or a select group within the community, end quote. It's all available to you. Can I give you just a couple of quick takeaways? Four. The better your theology, theological understanding, the better your praying will be. The better your theological understanding, the better your praying will be. Remember what we said in the beginning? How well you know the person and how well you know the subject will influence the quality of the conversation. The better your theological understanding, the better your praying will be. Secondly, we have access to the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. We have access to the same power that raised Jesus from the dead for our sanctification, for our hope, for our assurance. It's all available. Thirdly, our praying for others should major on their spiritual health and growth. Our praying for others should major on their spiritual health and their growth doesn't mean we don't pray for physical, temporal needs, but how deeply and often do we pray for spiritual realities? And lastly, the context for a believer's growth is the church. That's Christ's people. That's his body. That's Ecclesiology 101. He is Lord over his body, the church, which means our involvement in the church should be our highest priority in our use of time. Well, that's Ephesians 1. And in Paul's parlance, that's just the introduction. And our next study... If you have a self-esteem problem, you might want not want to come. <laughs> because we're going to find out that we are all chasers of Satan and demons and dead in our trespasses and sins. And that's how we live. But there's 